Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, as we come now to your word written so long ago in a time and place and context which is very foreign to us, Lord, we ask that you would be pleased to teach us and speak to us through your word. Thank you that that word is never um, covering things up or, or holding back. Lord, in what we have read tonight, there is abundant sin. Lord, there seems to be an absence of reverence and fear of you. And yet, Lord, you tell us it how it is. So, Lord, to us, as we hear your word tonight, as it has been read and as it is preached, Lord, would you speak oh so clearly to us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think this little book of Esther could really quite easily be made into a, a very successful TV series or something of the like, maybe a movie. You know, you have a powerful, morally questionable man and he has a bit too much to drink and um, he, he asks for something from his wife and then this kind of power struggle ensues and he, he turns to his friend behind her back. She's put out. He decides to have something like a, a beauty pageant um, to decide who he would like for a new wife. And then you have this rags to riches thing going on, don't you? You have this displaced Jewish girl who's had a hard life. She's lost her parents when she has been young. She's been looked after by her cousin. The odds are against her. But the king sees her beauty, likes her more than anybody else, falls in love, and she becomes queen. But there's all this conniving going on in the background. She doesn't tell the king that she's Jewish. Mordecai and her kind of plot that together. There's even more of a power struggle. We kind of got that at the end of the reading with these two men who were plotting to assassinate Xerxes. And they get executed. And that's just episode one of this TV series. It's good. It's good stuff, but it's hard stuff. So tonight as we come to this part of the Bible, I want us to do three things. First, we're going to think about the background to all of this because otherwise we're just jumping around in this big court drama romance without a clue as to the bigger picture and, and where it fits in the Bible. And secondly, we'll think about the events that happen because all of this stuff with Fasti being put out and then the harem of women and, and the feast, well, it's, it's all a bit familiar to us and actually some of it's quite difficult for us to think about. And then thirdly, we'll think about some practical points of application. So first then, the background to the story. Maybe this is a kind of flashback episode that comes midway through the series, I don't know. But if we just reduce this to the romance and the drama of the book, we, we actually miss the big picture. We need to know what's going on. So in the Old Testament, God has called Abraham and he promises that he will make him into a great nation. It's a bumpy road, to say the least. If you know the story, they go through slavery in Egypt. They wander in the wilderness, but they get there eventually. They get to the promised land. And God says repeatedly that if the people obey him and serve him, he'll bless them. But he also warns them several times. Um, here's just one example um, of a warning through Moses in Deut Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. So they're going to be taken over by a foreign nation and then they're going to be scattered. 
and the people don't obey God, and despite loads of warnings from various prophets, they continue to disobey, and the result is that God does as he promised. I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He attacks them. He absolutely routs Jerusalem. He, he destroys the temple, carries off the people into exile. And if you have a good memory, and if you were around back in autumn 2020, we worked our way through the book of Daniel together, and that takes us through that time in exile. People who are displaced, they've no temple, ruled over by this pagan nation. Then the Persians come along some years later, and God uses them to restore Jerusalem. It's promised again in the prophets loads of times, probably quite notably in Jeremiah 30 and 31, but also in Isaiah, where God actually names the Persian king who's going to do this long before it happens. He says, I'm the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my promise, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. So even though this, this Persian king doesn't know God, doesn't fear God at all, God is going to use him. He actually names it before he does it. He's going to use him to send the people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And we actually have some of Cyrus's records. That's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's on display at the British Museum. And on it, it's recorded um, that he released many people groups held captive by the Babylonians. Um, but it also tells us that he financed them. He sent them money. Um, to return to their homelands. And if you have an even better memory than people who remember Daniel, you might remember that before the first lockdown, we were in the book of Nehemiah, and we nearly got to the end before lockdown. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who came after Cyrus. And when Nehemiah heard that the rebuilding project in Jerusalem wasn't going well, well, he went back to sort it out. Now, Cyrus, the, the man who wrote these things on the cylinder, he didn't just let the people return out of the goodness of his heart. From his perspective, it was actually an opportunity to expand his reign a bit, to, to spread his influence. By paying for these people to go and rebuild their cities, he was buying himself that influence. But that's what happened. That's where we are 500 years before Jesus. The exile's over, but Israel is ruled by a Persian king, King Xerxes. So that's where Esther fits into the biblical sort of timeline. <laughs> it's easy to put it in a place in time, but it's quite hard to put it into the story of the Bible, though. It's hard to put the puzzle pieces together because the thing that the book of Esther is most famous for is that God isn't mentioned in the whole book even once. He's not alluded to. He's not named. And unlike the book of Daniel, which is also set under the rule of a non-Israelite king, in Esther, no one prays. Remember, Daniel was a man of prayer. Nobody prays in Esther. No one has a vision. There's no mention of the law. There isn't even one teeny tiny miracle. And add to that the main characters in the story, Esther and Mordecai. I watched a little version of this story for kids a while ago with my children, um, and Esther and Mordecai were made to seem like these really faithful Jewish people who were really good and who were doing God's work. Sometimes they're set up that way, as if they're heroes, brave people who obeyed, even though they were at great risk to do so, and they saved the Jews from disaster, which we'll see later on. But I'm not so sure about that when you actually read the story. Mordecai 
Well, that name, Mordecai, is actually a Persian name. He seems to have given up on his Jewish heritage altogether. He's been named after one of the Persian gods, actually, Mordecai. And his cousin, Hadassah, she seems to be clinging on to something of her heritage because she is known by her Hebrew name, which is Esther. But if Mordecai has given up on God and on his heritage as one of God's people, well, I suppose that might explain why they're in Susa, why they didn't go back with the rest of the people to Jerusalem. And he is the one who encourages Esther to go ahead with this plan, which is full of sin, as we're going to see, even in the little part of the book that we've read. He's the one who tells her to be dishonest and hide the fact that she is Jewish. And they both knew that if their plan worked, she would lose her virginity to an uncircumcised Gentile who wasn't her husband, and that would break the Old Testament law. And she manages to please the king more than all the other virgins there. So then she becomes his wife. She marries somebody from outside of Israel. And again, that is breaking the law that Moses gave. And Esther is brutal. She's absolutely brutal. Later on in the story, we'll see that she acts, she hears that the Jews have killed 500 people. And they ask Esther, what will we do? And she says, hold off for another day. And as a result, 300 more people are massacred. It's brutal. So we're in a pagan city. (laughs) God isn't mentioned, and the main characters, even those who we kind of think are God's people in this story, or at least who used to be, they are morally dubious, and that's putting it quite politely. In about the middle of the week as I was preparing this, I was thinking, Marty, what are we doing in the book of Esther? What are we doing? But the fact that God is not mentioned in this book is in itself an invitation for us, I think, to look for him and see where he is at work. Because the Persians were actually steeped in religion. As Queen Esther would have had to participate in all kinds of Persian religious rituals with idols, again, against the law of God. And so if the author of this book, and we don't know who that is, by the way, but if the author doesn't mention any kind of religion at all, that's bizarre. That should be a flashing light in our minds because they must have done that on purpose. They must have known that we would spot that and that we would come to this book looking for God. Perhaps also God isn't mentioned simply because of the sin going on in the book. The author doesn't want to associate God with Esther and Mordecai, but he still wants us to look for the ways that God is working through the situation. So that's the background to the story, and it's a bit of a mess. Secondly, then, what what happens in the story itself that we read tonight? Well, well, the first thing I think to realize is just how showy and extravagant everything is, not least the king. First, he gives a banquet for all his nobles. Then do you see verse 4, if you still have your Bible open there? For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and of his majesty. A full 180 days, that's six months. We're getting a long weekend to celebrate the fact that the queen has been on the throne for 70 years or whatever it is. 
180 days just to show off the splendor and glory of his majesty. I don't know what that even means. I don't know what you would do for six months to show off the splendor of your glory and majesty. I would think once you've seen one chariot, you've seen them all, but I don't know how many chariots and gold things and silver things and artifacts and all the rest uh, were, were going on there and on display for everyone to see. But he did this for six months, but that wasn't even the end, verse five. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And we'll come back to Vashti in a moment. But, but did you pick up on some of those things? Everyone in the city, every single person was invited to this there was the finest linen with, with silver rings connecting it together, couches of gold and silver. And, and by the way, we have lots of historical evidence, not least from ancient Greece, which says that, that these weren't like cheap metal and, and plated in gold. They were solid gold couches. Like, what would you do with a solid gold couch? You wouldn't want to sit on it. It wouldn't be comfortable. You wouldn't want to set stuff on it because then you wouldn't see that it was gold. It was just extravagance. Look what I can afford. Look what I have. Gold, silver, precious jewels. The more you can show off, the better. The king is rich beyond what we can imagine. And he also wants to be popular. He invites the whole city. He gives them as much wine as they like. Later on, when Esther is queen in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, it tells us that the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Look at how great a king I am. Look at my gold couch. Look at how kind I am to all of you, giving you all this wine and all this stuff. Have a holiday. Have a holiday because I've got married. How great am I? I imagine King Xerxes nearly thinks about as highly of himself as Donald Trump thinks about himself, but that, maybe we shouldn't go down that road. What about Queen Vashti then? Well, the king wants to, to bring her in, to show her off. We're, we're told that she was lovely to look at, she's beautiful, and she refuses. Now, this is where it maybe starts to get a bit uncomfortable for us. Some people have speculated that she refused to go in because she was going to be mistreated or and there was some kind of sexual connotation to the king's order. But it actually seems more likely when you read it and when you look at the context that she just refused because she thought it was beneath her. It was the sort of thing that the palace would maybe employ somebody to do or, or maybe even one of the king's concubines or a servant would do this kind of thing. It was quite common, but not the queen. She was a noble woman and, and she had dignity. She wasn't going to be brought in just as something to look at, to entertain the men. Now, at this time, there certainly wasn't gender equality and we'll see that a little while in, in a little while, but... Actually, in terms of rights, while women weren't equal with men, um, 
the Persian Empire actually treated women better than a lot of other ancient um, cultures. Now, that's not to say that it was ideal in any way. It wasn't. But in this culture, women were allowed to work, even to run their own businesses. We have evidence of, of women running their business and being in charge of men, which isn't entirely usual for this time period. But when it comes to the household in particular, the husband in this culture was in charge. So Xerxes is drunk. The NIV puts it very politely. It says he was high in spirits with wine. He was drunk. And he's annoyed that Vashti doesn't obey him. But I think Vashti, she must have had a point. Because Xerxes isn't as horrible to her as I expected when I started reading. I mean, when you read the rest of Esther, even when the king is sober, he isn't slow about impaling people. He isn't slow about hanging people. He really isn't. These two guys at the end of the reading who were plotting to assassinate Xerxes, they get hanged. So I think in the cold light of day, Xerxes knew and his advisors knew that Vasti was right. This wasn't suitable in that culture for a queen to do this kind of thing. But he still felt he had to make an example of her. See what the king's advisors say about her in, in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 1. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. If we don't set her up as an example, all the women will be at it. That was basically what they were saying. So they concoct a plan to replace Vashti and put her out of the court. And yet, to a certain extent, she does maintain her dignity because she was right. Anyway, on to chapter 2. The advisors suggest a plan to the king in verse 2 of chapter 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all of these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, this, this is where it gets really quite difficult for us to read in the 21st century. A harem, if you don't know, is a collection of concubines. And a concubine, if you don't know, is a woman, essentially, who, who lives with a man in a sort of informal marriage arrangement. And in the ancient world, it was particularly for having children. So uh, maybe a familiar example to many of us would be Abraham. He wasn't able at a time to conceive with his wife, Sarah. So she gave him her servant, Hagar, as a concubine. And he slept with her and Ishmael, his son, was born. Now, God never endorses the use of concubines in the Bible, and in fact, he says to Abraham, no, no, I promise that you and Sarah will have a child, and you will, but that was the practice in this culture at the time. But for a Persian king, somebody like Xerxes, he would have had his wife, and he would also have had a harem, which might have included hundreds of women 
All these women would have lived together, maybe in a, in a wing um, of the palace somewhere or in some sort of other royal building. And in fact, um, we have, our archaeologists have discovered um, royal apartments which they believe might have belonged to the harems of Persian kings. These women, they might have been summoned by the king at any time. They were expected to be sexually available. I mentioned a moment ago that the Persian Empire wasn't too bad for women's rights, but I'm maybe going to backtrack on that quite quickly. It wasn't exactly equality, was it? Compared to other ancient empires, women's rights were better, but they still weren't good. Women were objectified and exploited. It was pretty horrific. So why did Esther and Mordecai decide to join in with this? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But again, what the author is really keen to communicate with us here is just how extravagant all this is. Go out into all my kingdom, bring all the young virgins. In fact, Persian kings had so many concubines in their harem, usually for show. One of the Persian kings, not Xerxes, is reported to have boasted that he had so many in his harem that he had one concubine for every day of the year. Now, historians believe this was for show. The reality was that he had his wife. He, he might have had relations with some of the concubines, but he had hundreds of them just for show. Look at my gold. Look at my silver. Look at my marble floors and precious stones. Look at all the women I have available to me. It was for show. Everything was for show. Even, even the whole process of this kind of beauty pageant. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. If any of the men here complain that it takes their wives a while to get ready on the way out of the house, you might want to think again. I can't mention anything like that because I'm slower than Justine. Oil of myrrh, which is what is used here, was used to rehydrate the skin because the climate was hot and your skin dried out easily. But you only needed it for a few days. The king gave six months again. Something about six months for Xerxes. Extravagance, it was decadence, it was too much, but it was just to show off how rich he was. The same with the six months of beauty treatments. And so Esther, she goes through this process. She gets picked. Again, let's not dress this up. Let's not sanitize it. She goes into the king. He likes the look of her. They get sexually involved. The king likes her. He decides she's the one who's going to be queen. And so it happens. And then we get this little bit of tide on the end, which reminds us that Mordecai is still there in the background. He's still at the city gate. He's still in the background. He overhears this plot to kill Xerxes. He tells Esther. She tells the king. And the plan is thwarted. So we've looked at the background. We've looked at where it all fits in. We've walked through the story and, and at least touched on some of those thorny issues, although there's a lot more we could say. So then thirdly and finally, I just want to finish by offering two takeaway points for us. I mean, we've, we've got a lot of information tonight. We've heard a lot of information about what's going on in Israel at this time, where we are. We've heard a lot of information about what goes on with this morally questionable king and his sort of wife swap or whatever this is. But what about, what about us? What can we actually take away from this part of God's word tonight? Well, I think the first thing is that where God seems absent, he isn't. So we should never give up. Where God seems absent, he isn't, so we should never 
give up. One of the commentaries I was reading this week actually has the title, God Present Though Invisible, or something along those lines. It's the fact that God is present. Though he seems missing, he isn't. We didn't read anything about God tonight. He's not mentioned in Esther, but he's most certainly there. I don't want to get ahead of myself into next week's sermon, but we're going to see in the next verses a man called Haman, and he finds out, well, he falls out with Mordecai, and when he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish, he plots to destroy all of the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This gets very serious very quickly. I'll just read you one verse from um, chapter 3. The man looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. This is extermination. Remember, Xerxes rules over Israel and Judah. And even though the Jews were allowed to return home, they're still in his kingdom. So if Haman wants to kill all the Jews in the kingdom, he basically wants to kill all the Jews on the face of the earth. And whilst we'll get into the horrors of that next week, something to look forward to, just think about it for a moment. God had promised King David that one of his descendants would establish a kingdom that would last forever. We've been singing about that tonight. It happened in Jesus. But if Haman succeeds in killing all the Jews, that won't happen. No son of David, no kingdom, no Jesus, no hope for us. None of us could be saved. And so maybe now we begin to see why this is in the Bible. God's people are going to be potentially wiped out. But maybe, just maybe, they'll have someone, Queen Esther, in the right place at the right time. It's not that Esther and Mordecai are doing this because God has told them to. They're not following him. They really are sitting with some enthusiasm. But God is at work. We'll dig into this in future week, but for now, just this. Where God seems absent, he isn't. So we should never give up. We might wonder what brings Esther into this story with a king getting rid of his queen and having this weird beauty pageant harem exploitive system to find her. But God somewhere is at work in this. Where he seems absent, he isn't. So don't give up. That person that you've been praying for, who seems so far away from the kingdom, where their life seems so full of sin and it seems to get worse and worse. God seems absent, but he isn't. Don't give up praying. A few weeks ago at um, East Belfast Presbytery, which took place here, it was announced that one of the ministers in the presbytery has just received a call from the church's church planting panel to do outreach work on the Falls Road. Now, that would have been unthinkable. The idea is that he's going to plant a church there. Unthinkable 20, 30 years ago. But God is opening doors in West Belfast, and he's opening hearts. I was speaking to two people during the week who are actually also involved in church planting. One has planted a church in Carlisle Circus in North Belfast, where a generation ago, the churches in that area basically died. But now, a new church has been planted, and people are coming to faith, he tells me. The other guy I was speaking to has just planted a church in a Roman Catholic housing estate in Lurgan. And he told me that people are coming to faith in droves. They've had five baptisms this year of new adult believers and a clatter of new members back in January and several more coming later this month. In areas where God seems absent, he isn't. 
I haven't been here long enough to say it, but some of you have seen that here too. He is here. He's in those places where it seems like he isn't at work, but he is, and he is at work. So don't give up. If you can't see God doing that in your life at the moment, if there's something you wish he would do and he isn't doing it, if he seems far away, he isn't. So don't quit. And the second thing I think that we can take away from this is that none of the pleasures of this life will satisfy us. Only Jesus can. None of the pleasures of this life will satisfy us, but only Christ can. I mentioned about how showy King Xerxes was. I mean, these solid gold and silver couches showing off for 180 days, money, power, all the sex he could want, influence, popularity. He seemed to have everything. And you might say to me, well, John, there's, there's nothing in our reading tonight to say that he wasn't a very fulfilled man, that he wasn't very happy at the end of the day. But I think actually that there are some clues in there. And I think ultimately all of these things, which aren't necessarily in and of themselves sinful, well, they all prove themselves to be unsatisfying at the end of the day. The money and the possessions. Xerxes certainly had a lot of stuff. There's the understatement of the night. We can assume he had a lot of money. He had more than you and I could ever hope to have in comparison. Imagine having enough to get a solid gold couch. Would you do it? But his money and his possessions didn't satisfy him at the end of the day. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure he lived a comfortable life, the same man. But Xerxes, Vashti and all their stuff, well, there was a, a shallowness to it all. It was hollow. It wasn't any use to them unless other people appreciated it, it seemed. They had to put it on display for 180 days. No use being rich unless everyone knew about it. And ultimately, at the end of his life, he wouldn't be able to take any of that stuff with him. Materialism, it, it, it's such a huge problem in our culture. We can't obviously really begin to touch on it tonight, but if you are one of those people, that sounds very nasty, but Cheryl said anyway, if you are one of those people who like, likes to queue up outside the Apple store or something for the release of their latest product, what are you doing? Is it really gonna make your life better? Or do you just want other people to see that you have it? Maybe it's a bit of both. But even if you really do think it will make your life better, eventually, even a really great gadget will become yesterday's technology. Apple or whoever will stop supporting it. It won't last. Money doesn't satisfy either because you could always have more, couldn't you? You never quite complete the quest of having more money because there's always more to be had. The same goes for power. There's always more to be had. And it has to be said, the more absolute power somebody has, generally the worse the situation usually becomes. Look at Vladimir Putin. He's so hungry for power that he has to control what goes on on his TV in his own country and, on, and what goes up online. He doesn't trust anyone. I saw a picture of him a few weeks ago and he was talking to his, one of his interior security ministers and they were sitting at opposite ends of this 20-foot table. I understand why he does that with foreign people, but this was his own government minister and he didn't trust him. He had to sit at the opposite end of this table. He's paranoid. He doesn't even trust his allies and he never has enough power. He always has to flex his muscles on an international scale. He's morally reprehensible. Absolute power always leads to trouble. And the church isn't exempt from this, by the way. 
Somebody else always wants it. We saw that in the end of our passage, these two men who want to kill Xerxes. And you see how Xerxes deals with them? He could have just put them in prison. He could have exported them or something. But he kills them. The threat to his power is something that he just won't tolerate. Now, I, I get it. I, I realize that these are extreme examples, Xerxes and Putin. But it's the case for any of us who, degree any, who enjoy any degree of power in work or in the church or even at home. If we're not willing to be wrong sometimes, if we're not willing to be accountable, to be vulnerable, to be challenged, then we'll become defensive and our actions will not be good. Then there's a risk we'll hurt others to defend ourselves. Xerxes has all the pleasure he wants in life. He has plenty of wine, but it leads to him making poor decisions. He has all the women he wants, all the sex he wants, but that just leads to the exploitation of women and hurt and pain. Our world tends to think that the, the Christian view of sex is restrictive, it, it's holding people back from having fun, it's backward, it's stupid, it's whatever. But I don't think so. I think Christian marriage is a wonderful institution. It's beautiful. And it actually, it doesn't lock people in, it protects people. A faithful, loving relationships. All I'm looking for in another person, all I want sexually, I'm going to find in this one person and I'm not going to hurt them or other people by looking for it elsewhere. As people say their I do's, that they're publicly consenting to one another. Not that they can't ever say no or anything like that, but they have the freedom to say publicly whether they want to go into that kind of relationship or not. It's saying that no matter what happens, if there's an unplanned pregnancy or difficult life offense, I'm going to stand by you. You're not going to be left vulnerable in facing this on your own. Now, it's not perfect. I know it's not perfect. It doesn't always work out. But it's a pretty good precept. The world thinks that it's liberated from all this and this, this kind of thing, you know, this kind of unrestricted and casual encounters, freedom to move from one partner to another, free to commit or not as circumstances suit. But it leads to more hurt and it leads to more exploitation of the vulnerable. You only have to look at the statistics on human trafficking, particularly associated with the pornography industry and, and in prostitution. The numbers are scary, but our society sweeps it under the rug because we believe in this idol of sexual freedom. King Xerxes has this harem. The only thing I can kind of equate that to in more modern times is, is someone like Hugh Hefner and the Playboy Mansion or something like that, you know? It's always made out to be this kind of fun place, a sexually liberated place, a kind of ideal. But it's only in more recent years that we've heard stories of expected sexual favors, of abuse, of imprisonment, of girls and women being threatened or paid to keep quiet about it, or forced to sign non-disclosure agreements. If you want to pursue ultimate fulfillment in your life through sex, you won't find it. Now, all of these things that Xerxes had, are, as I've said, are not bad. They're not bad things in and of themselves. Money is very, very useful. It's very useful if you go into a shop to have money in your pocket. You can do a lot of good with money for yourself, for others, even for Christ. With power, there can be great blessing. When people are led well and governed well, society is a better place. Sex is an amazing gift from God that we're meant to enjoy where we're blessed with it. 
Influence is a wonderful thing because we can influence other people for the better. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be popular either. After all, friendships are very important. We thought about that this morning. And we are relational creatures as we have a relational God. Xerxes had all these things. But ultimately, none of these things would ever fully satisfy him. He would always want more. They would make him paranoid. They wouldn't last forever. In the New Testament, Paul says this about other things that might satisfy. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. As far as life went before he met Jesus, Paul had it reasonably good. He had religious status. He was a Pharisee. With that came a certain amount of power and probably wealth to a certain extent. Power, influence, possessions, popularity. But compared to knowing Jesus, rubbish, garbage, loss. In the coming weeks, as we move through this book of Esther together, we're going to see a lot of things that aren't God leading people into complete disaster. In the fight for power, there's violence and even massacre. In the struggle for position, there's paranoia. In a land of sexual liberty, there is hurt and injustice. We've already seen that with Vashti and some of these other women. But where God seems to be absent, he isn't. But where people seek things other than God, he's still at work. Even in the midst of sinful people, But these people won't find the eternal, never-ending satisfaction which is only found in God through Christ. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what's causing you to struggle or giving you stress in life at the moment. Only you know what that is for each one of us. The pursuit of financial stability at times when things are financially difficult. The accumulation of more stuff. The pursuit of pleasure, career progression, whatever it is, power. Can I challenge each one of you tonight? Whatever it is, hold on to it a little bit more loosely tonight. Because whatever it is, it's garbage compared to the worth of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks that even when life circumstances are difficult, even when it is hard to follow you, even when we can't see what you're doing, that you are sovereign and you rule and you reign and you are at work, amazingly working all things together for the good of those who love you. And so, Lord, you're the only one who can satisfy us. So, Lord, I pray for each one here that you would lead us and guide us, challenge us, show us our priorities, Show us more of yourself that we would want you more, to know you more, to be found in you, to be known as yours, to love you more. So to the glory of Christ, in his name, amen.